0: To hear women talk. This is Chris Hillenberg I'm your host. Uh, this is where we interview professional storytellers, and we get the story behind the story. And today we have with us Cindy Rivka Marshall. Um, is that did I pronounce that right, Cindy? Yes, you did. Okay, good. Uh, Cindy Rivka Marshall is an award-winning professional storyteller. She tells multicultural stories and Jewish folk tales for all ages and occasions. And she has performed in schools, libraries, synagogues, churches, and festivals since 1989. She runs the Dancing Tree Storytelling Studio at the Gorse Mill Art Studio in Needham, Massachusetts, where she offers workshops and storytelling skills to educators, clergy, and parents. Cindy's is a co-chair of the Jewish Storytelling Coalition and has served for two years as a board member of Lanes. I love Lanes. I was a member of Lanes when I lived up in Massachusetts which is the uh, network for storytellers in the Northeast. Prior to becoming a storyteller, Cindy worked for 15 years as a filmmaker. Some of her documentaries are still in distribution nationally including A Life of Song, which is a portrait of the Yiddish storyteller Ruth Rubin, And Key Change is a Portrait of Lisa Thornson. Uh, Her audio recordings have won awards for the National Parenting Publication Storytelling World and Parents' Choice. She's just released a new CD called Bear's Tale and Other Animal Tales. Welcome to the program, Cindy. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you here today. How are things in Massachusetts?
1: Very well. It's been a nice, um, dry summer, which has been great for doing outdoor activities. Anyway, kind
0: <laughs> uh, of I, I really miss it. Uh, you know, there's certain things about Massachusetts that I really miss. I, uh, you know, the Bolton Fair and different things like that, and, and uh, some of the different storytelling events. How, tell me a little bit about your background, Cindy.
1: Well. Um, what would you like to know specifically? Well, let's say, yeah, um, your professional background. Okay. Well, let's see. I I became a documentary filmmaker um, in my twenties, and I did that video and film editing and producing uh, for well, yes, yeah, you said, about 15 years. And I also was teaching those skills both to children in, you know, primary and secondary school as well as at the college level. And then I transitioned to becoming a storyteller, and I've been doing that ever since. Now, how did you get into storytelling? Well, I come from a family where... Um, we did a lot of theater. So my mom was a professional actress off Broadway before she had a family, and then um, was involved in community theater. Still is at the age of 80. Mm-hmm. I grew up being in plays and being around people putting on plays constantly, and um, had you know a lot of lessons in that. Um, studied theater actually all through my childhood and adolescence so it was kind of um, I went off in this direction of filmmaking for a while but when I came to storytelling it was a natural to come back to to performing in some way and also I was interested in folklore so that tied in as well. Hmm.
0: I I think you know that it's interesting because all of the different things that you have just mentioned are really performance art Mm -hmm. Um, And what is it that you you like about uh, performing storytelling?
1: Well, the thing that attracted me after doing film and video for so long was that I could have such an immediate connection with my listeners, with my audience, and look into their eyes and see the effect that what I was telling them had on them. I remember as a filmmaker, I would work for months and sometimes years on um, one piece. And then I'd be sitting in the dark, you know, auditorium as, as people <laughs> were watching. And it was like I would have all this adrenaline going and no way to, you know, express anything until the question period afterwards. And it was... Um, so I loved the idea of having a really immediate res- uh, response. Right. And also... Th- it was so much easier to get a piece up and running and out there as opposed to, you know, years of fundraising and then, uh, you know, proposal writing and then research. And the producing was just such a time-consuming process for a short piece, whereas this, I can work up a story and get it out there really quickly. So those were things that attracted me, for one. Um, I think I just... I, I, I feel very um, comfortable and at home once I'm on a stage or you know a, a platform or a place to to talk to people in that way. It, it just I love it so.
0: Kind of like second nature.
1: I guess I yeah. feel like, but you know I I also. I'm sensitive to, you know, like, is it performance or is it a folk art? And I I think there it, it's both. And one of the things that I do have as an intention is that stories come through me, that it's not about me as a big ego. It's really about the story and what the images of the story are, and that, you know, my voice, my facial expressions, my body movement all help to create those images, but... It's really, you know, my desire that people also don't just be seeing me, but they're seeing their own images.
0: Right, right. And I can understand that coming from a filmmaking background. Uh, and I know that, that you, you do use some of your former filmmaking ideas to work with storytelling.
1: I do, yeah. And um, in fact, I've offered workshops on this at conferences sometimes about, um, I really do think that my training in film helps me, it informs my my storytelling and my approach to how I develop a story. And in particular, when I think about the point of view, so, you know, I almost have like a camera and I'm thinking about where am I going to place it? So am I going to be seeing through the eyes of this character and tell it from their point of view, or am I going to be having more of a a wide shot, you know, where I see, like, all of the activity at once? Right, right, right. um, You know, and more objective. So I, I think that... The And you know just the very kind of visual imagery from filmmaking helps me to be able to picture i I have a strong visual sense, so I picture things in my mind mm. and then it's like I'm describing it., <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know that's funny because I do the same
0: thing i you know i i it's basically, and it's because I do artwork too. it's like I visualize this. In my mind, whether it's a, a story that I want to tell, or it's music, or it's uh, you know whatever I'm working on, I'm a very visual person too. I'm ne- I've never been very good at abstracts. I've always been very good at getting a, a visual idea of something and being able to communicate it. And it sounds like you're right right there.
1: Well, I am in terms of, like, in my mind's eye, I really have clear images. And I guess, you know, often when I teach storytelling, I tell people that I think that if the teller has the image clearly, then the listener will, will get it. Oh, absolutely. Um, and on the other hand, I also work very kinesthetically. So when I'm learning a story, I'm I'm moving a lot. My style of storytelling happens to involve a lot of... Um, Gestures and body movement and sort of embodying characters. So that's another way that I think I, you know, I express story is through my my physical my physicality. I know you
0: do. I know you do a lot of traditional folk tales, um, mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering now, as a woman, how do you bring your sensitivities to a, a folk tale? Well.
1: Yeah, good question. I mean, I think that when I first started to look at folklore um and I would be reading books and books of collections because that is unfortunately in some ways why the way that the storytellers in a contemporary setting can can learn these stories it's not it's not so easy to access, you know, the oral tradition that's been passed on generation to generation more likely I'm gonna be finding my material in books but often when I I read folktales I was alienated because I felt like often they were about the male characters or the male characters were the main characters right and it was hard to find you know folktales written about women, I mean, I had to go searching. Of course I could. And then even then, sometimes they were referred to as, you know, the fisherman's wife or the rabbi's daughter or, you know, it was often in relationship to the man that they were defined.
0: Right, right.
1: And so um, at first I was off-putting, but then I thought, well, I can – I can think about it and use my own imagination to fill out and fill in the blanks of, you know, what the woman was feeling in this in this story. And I've been, at times actually created new characters, and other times I've just, you know, more embellished and given a full range of emotions and imagery to the women characters. So that's been a way that I've, you know, approached it.
0: You know, that's very interesting. <clears throat> Never really thought of it before, as far as like folk tales that they really do come that they, they really do uh, are more male based instead of female based. And I can see where uh, that would be a uh, something that would be a challenge, but it would also be uh, refreshing mm hmm you know well we're gonna take a little break right now and uh, we'll be right back with Cindy Riff Marshall. This is Chris Hillenberg with hair Women Tell where we interview professional storytellers to get the story behind the story. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Michelle with La Bellamy Vineyard. You're listening to Hear Women Talk Radio and the Zeus Radio Network. Hi, this is Deb Coletti, and I am your host of Life on Purpose, a radio show where I'll be having conversations with a wide range of fascinating women who are, in my opinion, leading a truly rich life. We will laugh, we will cry, we will sometimes get very serious. It will get edgy. It will definitely be irreverent, and uh, no no subject off-limits. Tune in to hear where we go, and even join in the conversation. Life on Purpose with your host, Deb Coletti. Tuesdays at 11 a.m. on the Hear Women
1: Talk Network. R and Radio.
0: Welcome back to Hear Women Tell. This is Chris Ellenberger. Today we're talking to Cindy Rifka marshall uh, Cindy, uh, since we were talking about women's women and uh, folk tales, you have something called By the River, Women's Voices and Jewish Stories.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, that was a CD that I, I brought out a few years ago, and I worked on those stories for quite a while. Um, all of them... The sources of all of them are from the Jewish tradition, and but then I, in each of those stories, I, I made a significant retelling, and my versions all for all of those are, um, I've created versions of those stories that are from the woman's point of view in the story. Mm. So, for example, there's a very well known story in the Talmud that's referred to as Joseph who loves the Sabbath. And I took that story and I imagined his him having a daughter. And then I told the story where her, her story is, is kind of more prominent, her perceptions. Um, another example was I took some biblical passages about Miriam, who was Moses' sister. Mm-hmm. And I created what's known as a, a midrash in the Jewish tradition. It's sort of my own creative interpretation. And so I studied what others had said about her, but then I also made my own um, version of, of a story that was more centered around Miriam and her experience. Mm. Um, so those are examples of taking you know, traditional sources and then sort of creating something new out of it. And um, likewise, I took some other folk tales, like there's one that maybe I'll tell you later. That's a, uh, about um, the traditional version is about a man, and I made it a woman, and you know, on and on. I, I made a seamstress instead of a tailor. Right, right. Story. And in doing that, you know, you you can't just transpose the same story. You have to rethink it because. Some things may not work, you know, when you change the gender of the main character. So right,
0: to, because a, a woman might do something or react to something differently.
1: Yeah, or maybe in those old times that she wouldn't have traveled alone, for example, right. or you know. So, so I I really rethought and rewrote a lot of the stories and to make them, you know, really seem believable. Right, I, I know that you
0: do uh, a lot of different programs. Too, where you're actually um, you, you do a multicultural program about different uh, different countries, different uh, you know that sort of thing. Uh, you do the Jewish folk tales, and then you also do original stories. Um, the in the multicultural stories, you're really talking about diversity, aren't you?
1: Well, those tend to those programs tend to be geared to younger kids. Mm-hmm. I have a whole repertoire of stories they're animal tales. They're stories from different cultures where the main characters are animals or sometimes the only characters, um, all the characters are animals. But the message there is a little bit less, um, yeah, it's a little more subtle, but I think for young kids, it gives the message that here are stories from so many different cultures and look, they're kind of similar in some ways. Mm. And look, this, this story that's Native American is, is very similar to the story that's African in that they're both trying to understand the natural world around us and you know they're trying to understand about the planets or the moon or the sun and you know and so really the message is well we all have so much in common right that's you know we all um have our human emotions that so many people all over the world have have infused their stories with the same kinds of feelings right so in that sense it's about diversity and um, appreciating that.
0: And then I, I know you also do a lot of different workshops. you do uh, you, you, you do things for teachers and using story when they're teaching. Uh, you do workshops on oral history um, you do of course you do biblical stories and you do uh, in classroom workshops too with students. Um, yeah. And I this kind of, Piqued my curiosity. You also do stories called adoption stories.
1: Yeah, I've um, I've been working with another storyteller um, in the Boston area named Lanny Peterson for a while on this, and she and I. One thing we have in common is that we both have adopted children, and so I started. Actually, I was inspired. Um, at one of the national Sto- storytelling Network conferences and I'm trying to remember the name of the woman I can at the moment whose workshop I went to about this Nancy um, oh, it'll come to me sorry okay Nancy Schimmel mm-hmm. Nancy Schimmel offered a workshop at an NSN conference some years ago um, about stories with adoption themes and After I went to that workshop, I went and did a lot of my own research, looking at images of adoption in traditional folktales. And a lot of what I found was kind of not very happy portrayals. (laughs) Right. Very negative. And I didn't think it necessarily was... I wasn't sure if it was going to be helpful in a contemporary context, but I had this idea that storytelling in some way would really be helpful for adoptive families, for both the children and the parents to, you know, think about the issues related to adoption. So in more recent years, Lanny and I have been developing some stories together where we're we're kind of also doing a lot of adaptations of folktales and making them more adoption positive Mm. but then being able to look at issues of belonging or loss or identity or you know the things that come up for adopted kids and we've begun to offer these workshops at conferences for adoptive families and at adoption agencies, and and I'm real excited about the possibilities there. That, that I think we're going to start to develop resources that that could um, could be useful. Uh,
0: yeah, I think it's really interesting that you that um, to me, and and I get a sense for you that uh, any uh, concern or a thing that you're interested in there's always a way to get storytelling to work around that to help facilitate yeah.
1: it it's true I mean it, it has storytelling has so many applications and it it's so useful that it's true that you know I think any passion that one has and cares about you can find a way to utilize storytelling to to, to help with that in some way
0: right, right. So, I know yeah. there was a I, I read something recently about uh, Uh, this big push to use storytelling in business. Right. You know, and and some of that is um, sales-driven, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think there's also a a place to use storytelling in business, and this is just because I work uh, as a systems administrator for a company here in South Carolina to use story to uh, facilitate more of a team mentality or, um, you know, or as... um, to talk about our relationships with people that we work with and things like that,
1: you know? yeah, exactly. I think it, it can strengthen a sense of community wherever you are <laughs> if you share stories.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, what's for you, Cindy? What is the best part of being a storyteller?
1: Hmm. I think it's. I, I get a lot of satisfaction when I see that the stories I've transmitted have a a positive impact on people. And by positive, I mean that it gets them to think about something new or differently. It gets them to experience something that's thought-provoking or enjoyable. And I think also what's very satisfying is when I teach people and I coax them into um, realizing that they can use stories themselves and you know, I've had experiences with particularly teaching teachers that I find very exciting where they come, if they come away saying, I can use this in my classroom, I can go right back and use this, and, and just knowing that I've given them a tool that's going to make their presentations so much more effective, um, so that rather than you know reading a story to their students, they can tell it, or they can work interactively with their students to you know use drama and storytelling to make something come alive. Those, I just love having an impact in that way. Yeah. So I think that's yeah.
0: That's cool. I, I know you have this. You have the Dancing Tree Storytelling Studio in Needham, yeah. Massachusetts. You have to tell me how did it get its name?
1: Okay. Well, if you look actually on my website, cindymarshall.com, it, it has a little explanation about that, but uh, the dancing tree is an image that came up for me I'm not, uh, many years ago, but it's the sense that I come out of tradition, and that's like my roots, that I'm rooted in tradition like a tree, but then I'm... I move with the times, you know, and so my my arms are gesturing. I'm picturing this
0: right now, Cindy. You're doing this. Yeah,
1: well. <laughs> I, I do. I, I, I dance like a tree in the sense that, you know, almost like a willow or a tree that's moving in the wind. And so it's an image that just evokes for me this kind of, um the transformation that also comes in the stories you know so that it's rooted in tradition but it's transformed and comes through
0: um, as, a, as a as a living breathing modern
1: there you go yeah Story. <laughs>
0: right well, we're going to take another break and we'll be right back. This is uh, Chris Hillenberg with Here Women Tell. We're talking with Cindy uh, Rifka Marshall today and uh, we'll be right back. This is Judy Collins from Judy's House of Oldies, and you're listening to Hear Women Talk Radio on the Zeus Radio Network. If your spirit's weary and you need a word of encouragement, join me, Donna Tyson, for Rivers of Faith, Tuesday mornings from 10 to 11 Eastern Standard Time on Zeus Radio Network at hearwomentalk.com. Welcome back to Hear Women Tell. I'm your host, Chris Hillenburg, where we interview professional storytellers to get the story behind the story, and we're talking to Cindy Rifka Marshall today. Uh, Cindy, I know you've got several CDs out there. You've got Hala and Latkes, stories for Shabbat and Hanukkah. When did that come out? When, did you, when did, Do you remember when you Let's put that see. one out? Um,
1: that's an early one, I think 87.
0: Okay. And then you've got the one that we did mention, By the River, Women's Voices and Jewish Stories.
1: I think that was in 97. And
0: that actually won the Storytelling World, that was a Storytelling World winner award, right? And a Parents' Choice Recommended Award. Yeah. Okay. And then you have a new one. It's called Bears, Tale" and Other Animal Tales.
1: Yes, that's. I'm just in the process of releasing that now.
0: Oh, that's great. Now, now I also know um, that you're a co-chair of the Jewish Storytelling Coalition. Is that is that is the main office of that? Is that in Massachusetts?
1: Well, yes. It, it used to be a New England organization, and we used to have meetings in the Boston area. But we've now broadened it to include in our um, story Jewish storytellers from all over the country. So it's it's a network of Jewish storytellers nationally now.
0: Oh, that's great! And you're also a board member on Lanes, the League for the Advancement of New England Storytelling.
1: Not currently, but I did do um, I I did serve for a couple of years. Now were were you a keynote or what did you do? Was was it something this last year
0: you did at Sharing the
1: Fire? Well, last year I was a, I performed in what they call the Oleo. Okay. Uh, which is the Saturday night concert, and there's not too much in the way of performing since it is a conference, not a festival. Right. Yeah. So it, it's a juried um, concert, and I got to perform there,
0: which was. Right. Nice. I've been there. I've been there myself many times. As a matter of fact, uh, the first I had just started storytelling when I went to Sharing the Fire, and it was one of the the most fun experiences. I think I had had in a long time, and the people were so nice, and the workshops were so informative. I, I just really—it was like um, finding family almost.
1: Nice, yeah. We're—I think we're having the 20th anniversary of Sharing the Fire this coming March, 2011, in Warwick, Rhode Island. So wow. it's going to be a good fest, a good conference.
0: Yeah. That's cool. yeah. Oh yeah. I, I just—you know—that's. That's the one thing uh, uh, New England, uh, to me, seemed like that there was a lot of opportunities for getting into storytelling and, mm-hmm. and getting involved in organizations and things like that. And I'm, I'm hoping that this uh, radio program actually stimulates that in other areas of the country.
1: Good. You know? uh, do you have a story you'd like to tell us today, Cindy? Sure. Okay. Um, I'd love to tell you a story from my CD, By the River. Since uh, this is a women's radio network, and I thought it would be a nice um, segue from, you know, when I was talking about before, finding traditional stories and, and putting a woman's point of view into the story. So this is called The Magic Pomegranate Seed, and it is from traditional Jewish folklore. There once was a young mother who was so worried about her children, she could see them growing weak and thin before her eyes. One morning, she gave them her share of the food they had and didn't eat at all, and and she nearly fainted when she was out working in the fields. Her friend gave her a crust of bread and, and looked at her with concern. The young mother said, "'It's just not right,' We are the ones who are planting and harvesting the food. We do all the work, and then there's not enough for us to eat. The problem is not that there is not enough food to go around. The problem is the king who is having these lavish parties up in the palace on the hill. It's just not right. I'm not going to sit by and let my children starve to death. Her friend looked at her with concern and said, don't do anything foolish. Now the peasants were not supposed to go near the palace, but very early the next morning that young mother walked up the hill and she managed to go behind the palace. There was a door standing open. It happened to be the door to the kitchen. And the aroma of freshly baked bread Wafted on the breeze. Oh, the young mother nearly fainted with hunger. Just she could almost taste that bread. It smelled so delicious. And creeping up, she peered in the doorway and saw loaves and loaves of freshly baked bread cooling on the table. Oh, she thought, surely they won't notice one loaf missing. No one was about. So she went very quietly inside, and she scooped up a loaf of bread, put it under her coat, and was just about to leave when... Stop! Thief! The cook had seen her. Well, at that, the young woman turned and said, Please, my children are hungry. Just one loaf of bread? The cook looked at her with pity and... Would have let her go, but the cook's cry had alerted the guard who came running. What is this? Stealing from the king? And the guard took that loaf of bread and threw it on the ground. You're going to come with me before the king. And he led the young mother away, grabbing her roughly by the arm. She was taken to the king's chamber he was sitting at his table signing royal documents and he barely looked up when the guard announced this woman was caught stealing from the king oh well you know the consequence of that have her put to death the young mother could not believe this for stealing one loaf of bread the king was going to have her killed Oh what now would happen to her young children she had to think of something well just then she reached her hand into the pocket of her coat and she discovered one single pomegranate seed and it gave her an idea as she was being led away she mumbled under her breath but loud enough for the king to hear it's too bad The secret of the pomegranate seed will die with me. A secret? What are you talking about? Oh, it's just that, well, this pomegranate you see is a magic pomegranate seed. Now the king was very curious. What do you mean magic? (laughs) My parents and their parents before them have passed on The secret, you see, if you plant this seed in a certain way, a a pomegranate seed will will sprout right before your eyes and bear fruit. Oh, well, this I've got to see, said the king. You see, I I just haven't had a chance to to teach my, my children yet, and so the secret, it will die with me. Well, no, no, have this woman brought out into the royal garden. We're going to see this. And so the woman was, was brought outside, and the king and his advisers all gathered around, and the royal gardener was summoned to dig a hole. The young mother instructed him just what to do, preparing the soil, and then the young mother took the seed and, and approached and was just about to drop the seed in the hole when she stopped well, what is it? Go ahead, show us this magic tree. Oh, it's its just that, um, well, I realize that the magic will only work if the person who plants the seed has never stolen anything. And, well, I, this morning, stole a loaf of bread because my children are so hungry. Perhaps I could show one of you how to plant the seed. And so the young mother went up to one of the king's advisers. He refused to take the seed. It's, well, it's it's just that... Uh, oh, I, I've remembered a time I was just a young boy, I didn't know any better, but I... Well, my neighbor had a pocket knife, and, and he knew how to carve things out of wood. I really wanted to learn, and... Well, I stole the pocket knife. I, I didn't know any better, but... Uh, as you see, I, I better not be the one to plant the seed. And so the young mother went over to another of the king's advisors and tried to give him the seed. (laughs) It happened to be the royal accountant. Well, uh, I better not be the one to plant the seed. You see, it is my job to add and subtract the royal sums. And sometimes I do that a little in my favor. I, I better not be the one to plant the seed. And one by one, The young mother tried to give the seed to each of the royal advisors and they all had a story about one time when they too, however small, had taken something or stolen something that was not their own. Until the only one standing there left was the king himself. And so the young mother handed him the seed. Well, he took the seed in his hands and he put it there, dropping it in the soil. The royal gardener tapped soil on top and watered it, and they all stood there waiting. (laughs) young mother was thinking, now the king will see that, that I have been deceiving him, and surely I will be put to death. Well, but instead... The king got a far away look in his eye. When I was a young boy, my father had a royal necklace. Oh, I loved that necklace. One day I walked into my father's private chambers and I saw it there on the table. I was holding it up in the sunlight. And rainbows danced about the room. I... Oh, I wanted that necklace. No one was there and I, I took it. I hid it away and told no one. Not even when my father, the king, saw that it was missing. The king's servant was was accused of the crime and later put to death. I, I still never told anyone that I had stolen the necklace. I see that perhaps my laws are too severe. Even I cannot live up to them. And I see that this young woman here, well, that was not a magic seed, was it? The young mother could only nod her head. You're, You're right. I... No, 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 say no more. I... I would like for you to to come and and have a feast at the palace. I didn't know you were were so hungry. Oh, well, said the young mother, it's not just me and my children who are hungry. You see, it's all of the peasants. We have been going hungry because not enough food has been allocated to us. Well, the king had been oblivious to this. Well, then then tell all the peasants they can come to the palace for a feast. And so the doors of the palace were flung open, and all of the peasants came and had a wonderful meal. But then the young mother had courage and spoke up. She said, you know, if you'd like, I could advise you. About the distribution of the food. Yes, said the king. That would be ideal. Come and and teach me. And so from that point on, she advised the king about how to make sure that all the people in the land had enough to eat. That young mother lived a nice long life, watching her children grow, She had plenty of chances to enjoy bountiful meals with her children, and she often told them the story of the magic pomegranate seed.
0: Oh, very nice. Thank you. Oh, I love that. I I could talk about that forever. That's a great story. (laughs) Uh, Cindy, why don't you? um, We're getting to the end of uh, your segment of the uh, show now. Could you just tell people how they can get in touch with you?
1: Oh, sure. Well, my website online is www.cindymarshall.com. And at my website, you can find how to contact me further, either by phone or email, and also how to purchase my CDs.
0: Oh, that sounds great. Well,
1: thanks so much for
0: spending time with me today and, and talking with me. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. I've, I've enjoyed talking with you. Great. This is uh,
0: Chris Hillenburg with Here Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers. Please stay tuned because coming up next is Linda Goodman with News and Reviews. Thanks again, Cindy. Thank
1: you.
0: This is Chris Hillenberg, your host, where we interview professional storytellers to get the story behind the story. And now it's time for Linda Goodman with the reviews of storytellers. How are you doing today, Linda?
2: I'm doing just fine.
0: Great. Who are you going to review today?
2: Well, I actually listened to a really good CD called It Happened in the White House. Uh, stories written and performed by Lynn Ruhlman with music by Bob Sance and Gene McDougall. And uh, I I think you're familiar with Lynn. Yes, yes. She is a traveling one-woman history show who uses her considerable writing and acting talent to not only bring historical characters to life, but to make them accessible and familiar to her listeners. On this entertaining and informative CD about Virginia presidents and their wives, she wisely chooses to to portray characters who either did know or could have known the president and his wife, and all the facts in their tale. This frees her to bring a bit of herself into the telling, as opposed to assuming the persona of a well-known figure about whom many may already have preconceived notions. Right. Dolly Madison's story, for example, is told by a little girl who loves to watch Mrs. Madison feed her parrot. With the excitement that only a child would feel comfortable expressing, she relates the tale of how Mrs. Madison moved or, or saved many of America's valuable artifacts, including Gilbert Stewart's painting of George Washington from the uh, rapidly approaching British Army during the War of 1812. Mrs. Madison, the child concludes, is a natural heroine who did not care for her own safety. George and Martha Washington's love story is beautifully shared by Mrs. Chamberlain, one of Martha's friends from childhood. Mrs. Chamberlain shares intimate scenes from the life of a couple that is as devoted to the American colonies and their people as it is to each other. When duty calls, the Washingtons answer, though somewhat reluctantly, and trust that their love for one another will see them through the battlefields and the politics. Thomas Jefferson's daughter, Patsy, enlightens us about the details that led her father to write the Declaration of Independence. She also expounds on the role, on his role in sending Lewis and Clark on their expedition of the Louisiana Purchase. John Tyler's story is narrated by a singer on the Princeton who fondly relates the courtship of Tyler and his second wife, Julie Gardner, who was 30 years Tyler's Sing- junior. Tyler was the first president to be married while in office, and though Julia was accustomed to getting what she wanted, the narrator makes it clear that he believes the marriage was a true love match. A Servant tells the story of Elizabeth Courtwright Monroe, the wife of President James Monroe. She was a shy woman suffering from from convulsions and was compared uh, unfavorably to Dolly Madison in local gossip Indignant, the the servant telling this tale, recounts the story of Mrs. Monroe going to France and saving Madame de Lafayette from the French guillotine. That is the story the gossip should be telling, the servant declares. Mm -hmm. We are given insight into the lives of President and Mrs. Zachary Taylor by a tourist who is drawn to the stuffed war horse that the president has mounted on the White House lawn. Mrs. Taylor, the tourist confides, was never seen in public, except for church. She didn't want the chore of being hostess for the presidency. In fact, it's said that President Taylor did not even vote for himself because of his wife's reluctance to take on the role of First Lady. (laughs) My favorite story on this CD is the story of President Woodrow Wilson told by a woman who knew his second wife, Edith. Theirs was not the most romantic love story, but they had great trust in one another and great affection for one another. After reluctantly getting involved in World War I, Wilson went on to help write the Treaty of Versailles and to champion the League of Nations. He died heartbroken, of course, that the United States rejected that league. Mm. Featured on this recording are several pieces of period music provided by Bob Sentz and Jean McDougall, who play various instruments. Their lovely musical interludes set the mood for each story. Ruhlman has thoroughly researched these stories, and it shows. The stories are a wealth of information, and each narrating character is so unique that it's easy to forget that they are all being portrayed by just one woman. Though it cannot uh, be seen on the recording, Ruhlman is blessed with a face that can create expressions that mirror the inner being of her characters, and the physical changes affected by this are quite remarkable. I can think of no better performer to be brought into a school system. Her shows are entertaining and educational, and the lucky students who get to see her shows have a lot of fun in addition to learning history. The CD has photos of all the presidents and their wives, uh, at least the ones featured on this recording, and it also contains enlightening notes about the show. Seldom have I seen a more professionally produced package. And after hearing the CD, I have to admit I'm quite proud to be a native of the state of Virginia, the home of such fascinating presidents.
0: <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, yeah, we did. We uh, interviewed um, Lynn uh, back at the end of August. Yeah, I
2: remember that.
0: Yeah, and uh, she's a wonderful person. I really enjoyed talking with her. So thanks for the review.
2: You're welcome.
0: So this is uh, Chris Hillenburg with Hair Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers to get the story behind the story, and we'll be right back with the news.
1: This is Paul Trulove on Zeus Radio Network for hearwomentalk.com.
0: All right, you ready? Can we get started? Oh, we're just going to do that one. Yeah. You ready? Okay. Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Donna. Join
1: us Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern right here on (laughs) hearwomentalk.com. Why'd you add that? We added this part. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, start over. Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Donna. Join us Fridays at 1 p.m.
0: Eastern
1: right here on hearwomentalk. And laugh.
0: Be engaged,
1: be entertained, be there. For this Scott and Donna show. Yeah. I was supposed to say well, that. Well, you didn't underline it. Well, I'm supposed to say it, though. Okay, we'll say it. Just knock it off. Be Just quiet. say it. The Scott and Donna show. Awesome. You satisfied? Be there. All
2: right. Hello, race fans. This is Jeff Gilder, creator of racersreunion.com. When you're in Myrtle Beach, check out my favorite, the Caravel Resort. The Caravelle Resort has a golf department and concierge with golf privileges at virtually every course on the Grand Strand, including the coveted Dunes Club. And ladies, pamper yourself with Caravelle's Studio Spa.
0: Welcome back to Hear Women Tell, and now we have Linda Goodman with our news segment. How are you doing, Linda?
2: I'm doing well. How are you doing, Chris?
0: I'm doing very well.
2: Hot uh, enough for you down there in Myrtle Beach? It's pretty warm. It's pretty <laughs> warm. It's been a hot summer.
0: You know, I'm, looking, yeah, it forward, has I'm been. looking forward to the fall.
2: I'm looking forward to the winter. <laughs> uh, what do you have for us today? Well, um, I just became aware yesterday, as a matter of fact, of a new storytelling group in Williamsburg, Virginia. They call themselves the Williamsburg Storytelling Collaborative, or WSC, and they are presenting a series of benefit concerts to build awareness of the art of storytelling and its vital purpose in the community. And the great thing about this series of concerts that this group is doing is that it's a pay what you can then you which means you can come and and, you know whatever you can afford to pay you pay and all donations is what they're calling your payments donations will go to a local organization a local charity so you will not only hear some great stories but you'll be helping a local charity at the same time all their performances are being held at the kimball theater in merchant square in williamsburg And they just had their very first concert on July 31st, and it was very well attended and got some great reviews. They have some other concerts coming up. The next one is on August the 28th. That's a Saturday at 3 Mm p.m. Again at Kimball Theater in Merchant Square. And this time, the stories are going to be about children, highlighting the joy and the innocence of children. And all the proceeds are going to be- to benefit Colonial CASA. Uh, CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. CASA is the eyes and ears of the court and the members of the community are the hands and heart. And, of course, together you can do some great work. The next concert after that is going to be on September the 18th at 1030 a.m., again at Merchant Square in the Kimball Theater, and that is going to be a benefit for the National Storytelling Network. Oh, that's great. And then they also have an October concert coming up 7 p.m. on October 30th for the Red Cross. Oh, excellent. So it's a great group doing some great things and getting a lot of good word of mouth.
0: Now, what's the, uh, is there a storytelling guild in that area? or?
2: There is a, a guild called Weavers of the Word, but if you want to contact this group and find out what makes them tick, their website is Stories That Make a Difference, all one word, at Weebly. That's W E E B L Y dot com. Okay. Stories That Make a Difference at we, dot Weebly dot com.
0: Oh, that's great. Good. That sounds like a lot of fun, actually.
2: Yeah, and it's. Close so enough to me is about an hour and a half away. I can yeah. actually make a few of these
0: concerts. So that's August the twenty eighth, September the eighteenth, and then again on October the thirtieth. That's
2: correct. All of the Kimball Theater and
0: And I know a lot of people uh, like to make trips up to Williamsburg too, so they could possibly incorporate uh, like a, a, a trip to you know see Colonial Williamsburg and whatever, and then go see one of these things. And I think the Absolutely. fall would be fall would be a perfect time for that.
2: Absolutely.
0: Okay. Well, thank you, Linda.
2: You're welcome.
0: And uh, we'll talk to you next week about the news.
2: Okay. Sounds good.
0: This is Chris Hillenberg with Hair Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers. And uh, I'd like to thank you for being with us today.